You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. I decided to pick the ostrich, a very iconic, amazing species in Africa. And we, we of course... What can they teach us? The subspecies of the Arabian ostrich went extinct. And, I'll, and I'm going to go there very recently. They just went extinct very recently. So they're no longer there in Asia where they used to be. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. I don't even know what animal that is. I can't be the one recovering today. It can't be. It is. It certainly is. <laughs> Chris, that was an ostrich. Boom. How do we go from songbirds that, like, you know, sing and do all these things to that? It <laughs> sounds like some sort of mammal or something. Yeah. To a lion's roar? Uh, y- yes. Yeah. I- well, we're, there's a lot of differences between the ostrich and a songbird, and we are going to yeah. go through them in detail today. And if you're not a fan of an ostrich, I promise you, you will be at the end of this podcast. These guys are too cool, uh, large and flightless and yeah. crazy physiology, fun behavior. They might not fly, but they've got a lot going on in other places for sure. Ah, I mean, even have an interesting uh, conservation story. So, you know, almost went extinct, hunted for their feathers. One of the subspecies did go extinct. We'll talk about that. So just an amazing bird. And the reason we, we went back to Africa is I just really quickly, I have to say this Thursday, amazing interview. We're going into National Giraffe Day, which mm-hmm. is June 21st. And I interviewed Julian Fennessy from the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. And Angie, do you know why they chose June 21st as World Giraffe Day? It's well, kind of dorky. I uh, love it, though. It, I, it's the summer solstice, right? It's one of the longest days of yeah. the year. Yeah, that's all I know about for the date. For the animal with the tallest oh, neck. Oh, that's not dorky. <laughs> yeah. That's like the most clever thing ever. I love it. It's, I love uh, it. Well, and I'm really, yeah, yeah, and I'm really excited uh, for Chris to share this interview because behind the scenes, uh, Chris has been working on it for a, a while to coordinate it because uh, with Julian being in Africa and all and wanting to put this uh, podcast out for World Draft Day. So good job, Chris. It's going to be an amazing interview and I look forward to it. And then in preparation for it, we decided to pick the ostrich, a very iconic amazing species in Africa. And we, we, of course, years ago have covered the giraffe. And Chris, you're so good with numbers. Uh, which episode did we cover giraffes? How long ago? I have no idea. Let me check Google real quick. I was going to say. <laughs> episode 56. <laughs> wow. Episode 56. So, well, we'll put a link to that. A long amazing time ago. Ep- yeah. We'll, we'll put a link in our show notes to that episode so you can visit it or revisit it to help to help prep you and get you excited for the interview with the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. So 
Very exciting. Very uh, super cool. Oh, they're doing some amazing stuff. And, you know, he's the one that really has put the spotlight on giraffes. And and we talked about the silent extinction that's going on. So please look for that. It, it, it is an amazing one that uh, that Lauren from the other GCF, Global Conservation Force, put me in touch with. And then Mike Bona has always been yelling at me to uh, contact Julian. So I finally did chase him down. And he's literally... This week that we dropped this, he's out in the field. He had to go back out in the field to relocate some giraffes. So look look for that. Uh, what a cool conservation hero. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm still amazed at your one last week with Animals Asia. That just was, wow. Talk about somebody. I mean, all these conservation experts and heroes just, oh, they give me so much hope for the world. They're just amazing people. Well, everybody listening and sharing this podcast is also a conservation hero as well. And Chris, one of my new favorite heroes, conservation heroes, is a listener by the name of T-H-A-A-S, TAS1342, who just left us a review on Amazon that said, quote unquote, best podcast in the world. So oh, it makes my heart warm. Yeah, I know. See that one. I'm yeah, super cheesy you. right now reading it. And so thank yeah. you for that. Uh, Thas1342. Uh, and then also Emily Rose R left us a wonderful review too about our podcast. And um, she's an aspiring zookeeper. So awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. These reviews are critical to help circulate this free educational content. So awesome. Thank you guys. Yeah. No, thank you. And then Patreon, oh my goodness, like really picking up steam. Thank you so much. You're not only supporting free education, but you're also helping giving back to conservation. So, you know, like I said last week, we just donated to Global Conservation Force, and then we'll be donating to another organization this month. But we had Olivia, Tabby Cat, Emily, and Thomas all join us this week on Patreon. Like, wow, that is amazing. Wow, guys. Thank Thank you you so much. Yes. And... Just really quick, I mean, when Angie and I have been talking about Patreon and, you know, we'll, we'll leak out some more about it in the, in the coming episodes, but now we're doing just an after show because we were doing, you know, an extra episode a month, which we didn't think that was really attracting people because we have so many shows out there, so many episodes out there that we just decided we're going to do an after show and just kind of give some insights into the species that week that we covered, maybe some stuff we, we didn't cover in the main show, you know, some of our opinions on their conservation, and then just some insights into what's going on behind the scenes with like my interview with Julian, um, have another interview I did two days ago that I want to talk about, and then some interviews that Angie's got lined up. So, you know, just stuff like that. So look for that each week on Patreon now, the after show, but thank you so much, so much. Now, with that being said, Angie, this is the one thing I knew I was going to look up when I covered ostriches, and I should have done it like months ago, but I was always wondering like, where in the heck did this putting their head in the sand thing even start? Is it even true? I know, Chris. I have for sure used that saying before, so I'll be interested to hear uh, what you snooped out about the facts with that. Yeah. Yeah, I was always like, okay, well, yeah, I'm putting your head in the sand. Why? Now, Angie, most people, I think, understand what an ostrich looks like. Maybe they don't understand, you know, the black versus the gray, you know, male versus female. Or there are some subtle differences between the – there are two species of ostrich, which we're going to get to. Yeah, so, I didn't know that. You know, I 
That was a really yeah. fun fact that I learned this week. So we'll talk about that when we get to yeah. species and evolution. Yeah, Chris, one one description I read was unmistakable, period. <laughs> I was like, that was, yeah. was like unmistakable. Yeah, that's true. I think the ostrich is worthy of a little bit more description uh, in just mm-hmm. talking about a little bit about their colors. But yeah, Chris, I think it's really important to point out that it's actually males are the ones that have mostly black feathers with white primaries and then a white tail that pops, if you will. And mm-hmm. the females in general are going to be light brown, tan in color. So that's maybe an interesting fact for some people. But then in general, their face is what's so cute for me. Uh, they, of course, mm-hmm. have that long neck uh, that would highlight that doesn't have any feathers on it. And their legs don't have any feathers on it. And we'll talk – I have a whole slide on their legs coming up. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a fun one. Okay. <laughs> uh, but but, uh, but their faces, they have these small beaks, if you will, especially considering how large of bird they are. And they have these large eyes. Really large eyes. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, Chris, their eyes are the largest of any bird, which they they have they win a lot of size awards, and we'll a- talk about any that bird, second. any land animal, any land animal. That's yeah. la- that's oh, larger yeah, than an yeah. elephant, right? Yeah, they're, they're like, like two, two, two inches across. Two inches. Yeah, like they're huge. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, like what? <laughs> yeah. So these big eyes, a smaller beak, and. I fell in love with her eyelashes. As as a woman, mm-hmm. I'm always, people are always covered, coveting those long eyelashes, and an ostrich eyelashes are pretty amazing, and 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 also important mm-hmm. to help keep the dust and debris out of them when they're living in some of these dry habitats. But yeah, they're just a really unmistakable. I go back to that, like unmistakable, yeah. huge, and almost dinosaur like looking very very and then they go into their size so i'll let Mm -hmm. you you dive in because you like big things (laughs) i like big things well (laughs) Well, you like you like your like your 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 size facts so yeah big big well i've got i've got i've got a new one for you today so uh it'll be interesting i'll share that here in a little bit but yeah these, these are the largest and heaviest birds currently alive on the planet they can stand almost nine feet tall, 2.7 meters. They weigh 320 pounds or 145 kilograms up to. So they're they're just, they're enormous. I mean, anybody that's seen ostrich up close, worked with ostrich a little bit up close. I mean, they are big birds. These are, know, this I is was, the original big bird. <laughs> yeah, the original big bird. I love that. Yeah. I know. I was kind of bummed. Ostriches moved into my department at the zoo after I had left. So I didn't get to work with them. And now I'm kind of sad about that because they're just, they're just so cool. And I mean, and not only are they the biggest, they're like the biggest by far because an emu is a second tallest bird and that's only six feet on average. And they big time outweigh the second heaviest bird, which is a cassowary, another brilliant episode that Chris and I did a while back. That was a fun one. Uh, cassowaries usually only weigh about 200 pounds. So they right. are the largest bird largest by far. It's so funny. You, you mentioned emu and I immediately think of Corbin. Corbin Maxine is emu. Yeah. And you mentioned, mentioned cassowary and I think of Rob Lang. So underdone comics, two of our, two of our, two of our good friends. 
Um, Angie, did you see what was different between the Somali ostrich and the common ostrich? Well, yes. But first I had to realize that there was two different species of ostrich. That was yeah, like mind-blowing for me. Um, I am, I'm growing as a bird nerd and wanting to see more and learn about them. But I guess I missed this fact a long time ago and was really surprised yeah. to learn that there are two species. I mean, really the main distinction is going to be the coloration pattern of the neck and the legs, the, the featherless portions of the ostrich. And although in the different subspecies of the common ostrich, the neck coloration can change from a light pink to a red to even a light gray, pink gray, it was described. In the Somali ostrich, this coloration is more gray, gray blue, it's even called. I think blue yeah, is a little bit, yeah. blue is a little reaching for me, but definitely grayer mm. in color uh, as compared to the common ostrich. But Chris, you got to love science because the Somali ostrich was considered just a subspecies of the common ostrich until 2014, so not that long ago, uh, where mm. they did mitochondrial, your favorite, uh, DNA. Mm. And they basically were able to show that there's a lot of genetic differences enough to, to determine that they're a separate species. And so what researchers think is the speciation between the common ostrich and the Somali ostrich is an example of allopatric speciation, something I quiz my mm. students on, hint, hint, if you ever take one of my <laughs> classes. Uh, but what that is, is just there's a, there's a barrier that prevents the animals yeah. from breeding together. And in Somalia, they believe that's the East African rift basically kept yeah. the two populations apart for a long time enough to have their DNA be distinct enough to consider them a uh, species. And I think this is important too, because the common ostrich is listed as least concerned by the IUCN, but the Somali ostrich is listed as vulnerable. Vulnerable. Yeah. And that's why we need to keep our eye on it. And I'll talk about organizations later on in the podcast that are doing this. But yeah, I mean, it really, like, I just assumed that all ostriches were fine, you know, that, that they weren't endangered. And so yeah, 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 we really appreciate this molecular evidence. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because that just reminds me of the interview with Julian because we talk about the different species of giraffe. And why that's important, what you just you just made the point that he makes is, well, some of these populations of giraffe are doing okay, like down in Kruger, where you were last year. Oh, they were doing great. I loved them. Oh, I yeah. love them. <laughs> versus other subspecies that are, or species, not subspecies, species that are critically endangered. And we go through it all. So, yeah, that's a great point, Angie. I mean, it's, yeah, amazing stuff with them. Now, with all that, Angie, you know one of these subspecies is. Extinct, I know I'm right? I'm on fire today, aren't I? I just one? got back. I just got back from a run, so it's like <laughs> woo, the neurons are firing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this is such That's a good. Fun That's species. good. Oh my gosh! I, yeah, this has been a fun prep all week for the ostrich. Uh, we'll get to the subspecies, but you know one of the subspecies went extinct, and that was uh, the one in Arabia. The Asian one. Well, we haven't even talked about, I think yeah. we're so ahead of ourselves. We haven't even talked about their range yeah. and habitat. That's what I'm that's... trying to get to. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm trying to get to, but it's okay. But I was going to say they used to range Cle there. Uh, 
if in case people thought we're professional, now they know we're the mom and pop show. But you know, that's okay. <laughs> yes. We're very we're very no, I mean, rela- they- we're re- we're very relatable, right? Yes, yes. And they I was I was I was trying to get to range in, in the fact that the subspecies of the Arabian ostrich went extinct and I and I'm going to go there very recently. They just went extinct very recently. So they're no longer there in Asia where they used to be. Now it's pretty much predominantly Africa and it's the dry hot savannas or the woodlands. So you have pretty much most of or all of North Africa over to Somalia, down into Kenya, Tanzania. Then you have to go all the way down to South Africa, uh, probably Botswana, uh, Namibia, and Mozambique. I'm I'm looking at the map of the range now. So you're not going to find them in Central Africa in some of those countries. Right. Now, you can find them all over the world, Angie. You can find ostriches everywhere, even there Mm -hmm. in Florida, because, you know, I don't know how to talk about it a lot, but they are farmed throughout the world. So you do have sizable populations of ostrich everywhere. Yeah, Chris, it was just really striking to me and had an impact on the fact that there really used to be, not that long ago, ostriches roaming Asia, Africa, and the Arabian Peninsula. And that just, I don't know why. It's like, gosh, that's such a shame that that's not the way that it is today. Besides being the largest bird and just their physiology. I mean, it's going it's super impressive. We'll we'll talk about all the fun facts, hard-hitting fun facts here shortly. But they have a really important role in the ecosystem. They eat a lot of plant materials and a lot of seeds, and so of course, they're a seed disperser like a lot of the bird species that we cover. And because they are this grazing almost herbivore-like animal, um they do have an impact on helping replenish new vegetation throughout the savannas of Africa where they live. And what's also super cool is that they are omnivores, mostly herbivores, but slightly omnivores. They will eat some bugs and insects here and there. I mean, you know, why wouldn't you, right? And they are known to eat. (laughs) But Chris, they're known to eat locusts, which can be extremely helpful minimizing Mm -hmm. the negative impacts that locusts have in Africa as far as raiding crops and just, I mean creating a lot of damage. Us over here in the United States aren't really familiar with the locust insects as far as being damaging to crops and just being swarms right, and things right. like that. And so they have mm. a role as helping keep that population in, uh, under control theoretically in certain areas. So they are a large bird uh, and we'll talk a lot about when we get to their generation interval uh, because as part of the food chain, they they do provide food for some of your other African favorites, such as lions and hyenas and things like that. So we don't want to think about that, but uh, it is an important role that they have to keep some of our carnivore populations happy and healthy in Africa. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard when you take something like that out of the ecosystem with the the effects it, it can have, you know, to, yeah, uh, to, and I mean, to a lot of and, species, for sure. Yeah, well, I know, Chris, and it's crazy to think that ostrich were almost wiped out in the 18th century due to hunting. Their feathers were really uh, coveted, and so, but they were saved. And although I can't really speak from an educated point of view on ostrich farming, I didn't have enough time to fully dive into the mechanisms behind that. But in some instances, wild ostriches did benefit and are benefiting from the farmed ostrich because 
they that can be the source of feathers and meat and other things like that. So it is a delicate balance between domestication of certain animals and wild animals and things like that. But man, I just can't believe that they were almost wiped out in the 18th century. And then obviously they are now currently no longer found in uh, the Arabian Peninsula and Asia and things like that. So uh, we need to make sure there is still a healthy wild population of the common, which there currently is in Africa. Uh, But the Somali Mm -hmm. ostrich, we got to keep an eye on, on that guy and girl. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. Yeah, so Angie, I did, you know, last week after looking at Red Pandas and, and we were talking a little bit about how Nepal has been doing an amazing job there. And then kind of talking to Julian this week, I was kind of curious about how ecotourism is is going in Africa. I will tell you, he does say, and, and we've seen reports of this throughout the world that due to COVID, I mean, ecotourism has taken a massive hit. And that means animals, wild animals have taken a massive hit. So that's kind of why I want to talk about it, because as we come out of this epidemic and people are thinking about going on vacations, I'm really trying to urge everybody to go and go support ecotourism wherever you live. It could be local or if you're going international or traveling wherever, you know, support ecotourism because the animals uh, need it. You know, the, the ecosystems need it and the local yes. populations need it. Absolutely, Chris. You bring up a really important concept and I've been wanting to hear what it's like on the ground in Africa or other countries where some of our favorite species mm-hmm. live and what's happening with ecotourism. So I'll be sure to check out the interview and and in under the same breath, I think it's important to support your local zoo if you can, because we we yeah. are starting to see that some of them are opening, of course, uh, with mm-hmm. social distancing type uh, restrictions and things like that, but trying to keep everyone safe and healthy. But we're starting to see that some zoos are opening. I know Zoo San Diego was going to open pretty soon. I can't remember what Rick said if yeah. it was uh, in in June. Um, California, they can open now, but yeah, they're, they're not quite open yet. So yes, but when they are, that's also a, a good way there. too, because they need our support yeah. as well. Uh, and of course, yeah. all the accredited zoos support conservation in the wild as well. So, yeah. But yeah, it's tough, to- tough times. It is very tough times. And I did look up a couple of papers, and I'll I'll probably save some of this for the after show, just because uh, we're going to run long as it, as is with the ostrich. But this was a very good paper. It was ecotourism marketing alternative to charismatic megafauna, can also support biodiversity conservation. So in essence, what this study was looking at, people go to Africa to look for the big five. Well, that doesn't help some of the the less charismatic megafauna or certain biomes in Africa that don't have them or many of them. So that's what this paper kind of looked at. And the reason I just wanted to highlight it is not so much just what they were looking at, but some of the, the important points I believe that they make that I really want people to think about. And that is connecting to nature and how nature makes you feel. So what they were really talking good. about is cultural values. Is the answer really yeah. good? <laughs> is that the, is that yeah, the, yeah, the it does. Inverted? Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. it's true. I, it's just, I get outside and go for a hike and I literally can feel the dopamine. Like I instantly feel better. Yeah. Now I'm a scientist, yeah, energy, so don't. That's just, that's an N of one. Obviously, I haven't measured my dopamine levels to know if they actually increase when I go out mm-hmm. in nature. 
but I can feel something different. And yeah. I'm happy to hear that there's anecdotal. actual real yeah. data behind this. That is anecdotal. Anecdotal is good. Anecdotal is really good. start. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, and they do talk about studies that, that have looked at this. And, you know, when people do go to, say, like Kruger, even though, you know, you're looking at big animals, but you just you were looking at other things, too. You had this sense of place when you were there and it just entails what they say, people's emotional and intellectual connection with places in nature developed through experiences, right? So when you were out, you know, I was almost experiencing it through you when you were sharing all your videos and I was like, oh, but I, I wasn't quite lucky to be there, right? Seeing it. Oh, yeah, I belong. I belong there, hands down. That's where I belong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. for sure. Well, yes. well, it's the same okay. thing I think what people get when like camping and there's really cool mm-hmm. studies to show that certain immune cells actually increase like natural killer and some other ones increase after you go camping and they stay elevated for like up to a month. Just yeah. some really cool, yeah. some really cool data out there. There are studies and, and they quote some of the studies in this paper that experiencing natural environments provides intangible benefits such as reduction and recovery from stress, the lowering of blood pressure, the promotion of social integration, increased positive mood and self-fulfillment, and enhancement of psychological integrity and identity. So Angie, when you said earlier, your dopamine, that is awesome because that is exactly what going out into nature does. Yes, do it, everyone. (laughs) All right. And Angie, I know just in the interest of time, I had some. I had another study too on ecotourism. I'll just save it for the after show. But the take home message in all this is research is being conducted, you know, out there on the benefits of ecotourism from the visitors, and then also the locals. And I, and I'll cover you know more local stuff again. The benefits of ecotourism to local economies, local environments, because that is a major piece of, you know conservation. So it's encouraging. It's encouraging, right? All right. Okay. Evolution. I'm going to try to go as quick as I can, but it's hard because- You mean that they're dinosaurs? Rattitors. That's pretty much it. Yes, they are. <laughs> they're dinosaurs. There you go. It's, it's The ratites are so cool. These are the flightless birds. They're so cool. And I know we've covered the kiwi. Mm-hmm. We've covered the cassowary. So now we're covering the ostrich. Eventually, for Corbin, we will cover emus, and then the Rhea at some point too, the one in South America. All right. So, flightless birds basically means is that they have a flat breastbone. They lack the keel that the pectoral muscles can attach to that allows flight. Mm-hmm. So, for anybody that eats chicken or you eat turkey, you when you look at the breastbone, you can actually see that that upward keel. Right. Sure. These birds don't have it. These don't. So that is that is one commonality. Puny wings, so that doesn't allow them to fly. Well, Chris, uh, puny for the ostrich is what? They're, the wingspan's only two meters, six to seven feet, so. Uh, okay, well, okay, it's still big, but <laughs> to get that thing off the ground, you would yeah. probably need like a 737 wingspan yeah, or something. Exactly. <laughs> It'd be huge. No, it, it's a good point, but it. Very true that, you know, their their wings are smaller than normal. Mm -hmm. Thomas Huxley, very famous naturalist, he also found that the 
bones in the roofs of their mouths in these ratites are not like other birds. It's more reptile-like. So there you go. They're dinosaurs. We're done. Awesome. (laughs) Interesting. I did not know that. All right. So the question was, are these birds all related to each other? Because you're talking New Zealand, Australia, Africa, South America. Or it used to be Asia, you know, when the ostrich used to be there. And was there, they actually, was there a link or do they evolve differently? Okay. Now in South America, there's the tinnitus bird that doesn't quite fit with ratites or other birds. It's one that's a ground dweller. It doesn't really like to fly, but it can. So they did some DNA studies and that's kind of, this thing was the missing link. Okay. Between birds that can fly and these ratites, these ground-dwelling birds that don't fly. So they went, and even the moa, you know, the extinct moa and the other one, if you remember, mm-hmm. we're going to talk oh, about I, here in a second. The moa, yeah, for sure. <laughs> the, yeah. So they looked at DNA. This was kind of the, the missing link. So all of these ratites go back to a species that used to fly. Okay. So DNA has kind of shown the, the link there. So what they think happened is about 70 million years ago is when they started to, they were still flying birds, but they started to evolve separately. But Mm -hmm. then once the dinosaurs got wiped out, these birds didn't really need to fly anymore because there weren't major mega carnivores out there. So they evolved to where they didn't need to fly. And so ostriches, you know, ostrich way back when this is, it wasn't even an ostrich, whatever it was 50 million years ago. And then 45 million years ago, 40 million years ago, they just got bigger, but they didn't need to fly because they didn't have a predator that could, that could take them out. Remember, first mammals were, were shrew-like, you sure, know? And then, sure. Yeah, there, there was the, not these the horse, mega carnivores. The horse evolved from an, a little fox-like creature. A little... Yeah, like, <laughs> Eohippus. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so it's really cool when you really look at this evolution of these flightless birds is there was no pressure or carnivores. So they, they lost their ability to fly. Then as mega carnivores came around or larger carnivores, then they either grew bigger, found defenses and then evolved into the cassowary, the emu, the ostrich, things like that. Okay. So for ostrich, the earliest fossils we can find about 20, 25 million years ago from Africa. Mm-hmm. And then they were found throughout Eurasia five to 13 million years ago. And they stretched all the way from Mongolia down to Southern Africa. Now in China or East Asia, they became extinct when the end of the last ice age. That's only 10,000 years ago. Not very, not very long ago. And now we know they just went extinct. And we talked about the Arabian ostrich that went extinct in 1966 yeah, and that's I when they left not Asia. really long ago that was not long ago yeah yeah so that kind of stinks but anyways that's kind of the history you know the quick version and just to wrap it all up the taxonomy of ostrich the genus is struthio so and then the two species you have struthio camelis like a camel 
Mm-hmm. And that goes into some of the physiology we're going to talk about. They actually kind of, they're camel-like. Those kind of eyelashes. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> Very true. And then the Somali ostrich is Struthio mollibophanes. So those are the two. And then you have the North African common ostrich, the South African common ostrich, the Maasai common ostrich, and then the Arabian that went extinct. So mm-hmm. that's it. That's all of them. Now, do you remember, you have to remember this, the largest Uh-oh. bird You're ever. You're talking to a mom brain on like- Oh, come you know. on. The largest bird ever. Oh, uh, the elephant bird. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, we talked See? about- we, we I do pay attention. Maxi, yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. That's like, I'm very proud. I don't know. I'm proud that fact was able to come to my mouth. <laughs> I know. Okay. So- the elephant bird, which was an amazing thing we we discovered when, I forgot, maybe cassowary, because it was a recent discovery that displaced the moa, which was from New Zealand, that mm-hmm. went extinct 700 AD, right? Sure. And then, or yeah, CE, common era, to all of a sudden this elephant bird, they found fossils, which is recent within the last two years. And this thing was almost 10 feet tall, weighed 1,600 pounds. Like, are you kidding me? That's hard for me to get over, kilograms. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and went extinct only about 800 years, years ago. Only Crazy. 800 years ago. Like, I love it. That thing was still running around. Okay. So that's the largest overall, but not the tallest. So there is a bird that's taller than that that I found. And it's a recent, uh, I think, discovery that they found. And this is, ooh, this is going to be a fun one to say. Pachystruthio. Ooh, that's good. Okay, Pachystruthio. Demenesenis. And I'm not touching that one again. Should we just <laughs> so, call it the giraffe bird? We should just call it the giraffe bird. Yes, <laughs> it is. Stood 12 feet tall. Holy so macaroni. So two more feet. Yeah, two, yeah, almost what was that four meters or three and a half meters and weighed almost a thousand pounds, about three times the size of a modern ostrich. So not as big as the elephant bird in size and width and all that, but taller. Right. Taller. And so when you quiz me six months from now, is it cool if I just call it the giraffe bird? Because I'm not going to be able to pronounce it. Yeah, because name. I'm never saying that name. <laughs> never saying that name again. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no way. Giraffe bird. We just coined it, the giraffe bird. You heard it, you're, yeah, you heard it here first. Okay. Now, Angie, again, some amazing facts with ostrich. I did. I was like, what? When I read this, that they said an ostrich can live up to 70 years. I was Chris, like, it's so what? funny you say that. It's it's always interesting <laughs> what you and I like are shocked by yeah. each week. That one made me really take pause and go run. John, John, did you know this? And and so, and of oh, course, he did because he does. Did he? he knows everything? Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah, he's like that's why you of don't want a pet ostrich. They like they like live forever. Um, obviously, no, nobody wants a pet ostrich, but no, but, it, but really, no, but I mean. No. If you think about it, even from like a zoo point of view, like it's a commitment, like those yeah. birds, because they do live a lot longer under human care. Uh, in fact, I read that the record in captivity was 62 years and seven months. Um, but in wow. general, it's it's 50 years, even potentially in the wild. So yeah. that is a long time. Yep. And we know that 
citizens, parrots, we still need to do a parrot species. Trust me, that's I'm really pushing for one of those. Uh, they live a very, very long time for birds. But mm-hmm. with the size of the ostrich, that was just shocking to me. It was just yeah. shocking. Yeah. So, like, how do they live so long? Like, I just, it's crazy. Yeah. Some of these yeah. birds. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, they're just, they're, they're fun. I mean, you know, we, we talked about the wings and, and the breastbone and, you know, what are some of the other cool physiology stuff that you found? Well, I think it's worth to talk about their feathers just for a second, because even though they don't fly, their feathers are beautiful and they look shaggy, almost like hairy, if you will, uh, because they hang loose and they don't hook, they don't have the hooks together. They don't have the hooks that hook the feathers together on other types of birds that fly. So it's really quite a different looking feather. And I think that's why they were coveted for so long and why they're hunted. Uh, And then the other thing too, with their wings they have got that wingspan, like we mentioned, of about two meters, but they use their wings like a boat rudder. And so mm-hmm. it helps them make really tight turns or zigzagging motions when they run, but they rely on their wings to stay balanced and in control. And it's just really cool because if you have watched any videos of ostriches running, you can see that they put their wings out and yeah, it's kind of like helping mm-hmm. them steer. Pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that is, that, that's, that's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Well, and so thinking about like them running, one of the questions I had is how in the heck does this bird survive in Africa? Like, wouldn't it just be a snack for a lion? You know, that's what I, I just thought lion seeing ostrich. Okay. There's, there's chicken dinner whatever. Just go get it. Like it wouldn't be that hard to take them down. I mean, I, I did see, I forgot which one it was. I think it's Planet Earth 2 or, or or one of the BBC documentaries that the the cheetahs, I think it was three male cheetahs, take down an ostrich. I remember sure. seeing that, but it, I guess it's a lot rare because, I mean, things that do go after ostrich. We know cheetah, lions, leopards, uh, the African painted dogs, spotted hyenas. But, so I'm like, okay, how do ostrich survive in such a harsh environment with that many predators? Well, one, they're fast. Right? They're really fast. Really fast. And yes. they've got some gnarly wings or gnarly legs, right? Yeah, Chris, they can maintain a speed of about 31 miles per hour, which is 50 kilometers. But in short bursts, they can run up to 43 miles an hour or 70 mm-hmm. kilometers, which that's booking. I mean, that's, that's, that's fast. Yeah. And they also yeah. can cover 16 feet in a single stride. That's crazy. That's crazy, right? Yeah, that's and, that's huge. Yeah, and that and that's why I mean their legs are so powerful. They they look skinny, like if you're just looking at them from a distance because of their big their big body, but they really are quite strong. And their legs are placed perfectly in the center of their body, in the center of their gravity, to obviously help keep them well balanced. And um, and they're also known, of course, to have the bare skin on their legs and feet. Uh, but these legs are pretty powerful. They can, they, if they're cornered or they're desperate, they, I mean, they can really deliver a pretty powerful blow. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you don't want to, you don't want to corner an ostrich if you don't know what you're doing. That's for sure. And, but then if you move down, down the leg to their feet, I seriously put a picture on a whole, a whole slide of just a picture of their feet. 
Because they're dinosaur just, feet. Yep. Yes, they're so. Yeah. They're so crazy. They basically they have just two toes on each foot, uh, which is interesting because most birds have three or four. So that also separates them from a lot of the other birds that we've talked about on the podcast before. And the nail on the larger inner toe is almost round, looking like a almost like a hoof. Some people mm-hmm. have described it. And then the outer toe has no nail at all. So researchers hypothesize that these two toe instead of three or four, helps them run faster. But, of course, you know, we're not sure. Um, But I highly recommend if you've never zoomed in on ostrich feet, do it. You'll thank me because they almost look like scales, like just – they're like dinosaurs, Chris. I'm telling you, when you look at their feet, you think dinosaur. I just – they do look like dinosaur. I mean, they're just – you know, all the physiology is just crazy. I mean – yeah, for a bird, thinking about them being omnivores, I'm like, <laughs> so I don't think they're that far the, from dinosaurs, but, you know, they, you know, looking at what they eat, you know, seeds, some leaves, roots, things like that. But they do sometimes consume rodents, lizards, snakes, <laughs> not just locusts. Like, come on. <laughs> they're hungry. They they need oh. to eat a lot. And I, I, Chris, when they're living under human care, they require like three and a half kilograms of food a day. So that's a fair amount of food. Yeah, yeah. Well, and one of the things I, I, I did kind of dork out on real quick, and that was gizzards, because I read that they do eat pebbles. Because, like, how does an ostrich digest a rodent, like, for all things, you know? And so what I did, I looked up gizzards, and I remember gizzards and turkey and chicken and things like that. Like, people eat the gizzards. And what it is, is all birds have gizzards. Mm-hmm. And Basically, what it is, it's a specialized stomach. It's thick muscle that grinds up this food. So certain birds will swallow stones or grit that resides in the gizzard. So this muscular stomach with these stones grind it up. So it's actually like that's what chews the food for birds. Even things like seeds, they need that gizzard to open up the seed to get to the seed head to get the nutrients out. And so birds, that's why birds don't have teeth. They have gizzards. So I thought it was kind of cool. Oh yeah. Bird biology <laughs> and, is amazing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and did you know, this is a kind of a dorky fact because we didn't cover it, but do you know, Oh, I was going to ask you what other species I'll just give you. I'll just go to the punchline. Alligators and crocs have gizzards too. Like, <laughs> Is it crazy? I didn't know That's that. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 It's, well, it's important. And uh, well, and I didn't have time to do too much digestive anatomy on it uh, like I would love to do. Uh, but the ostrich has three stomachs and a cecum. So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. pretty, it's, yeah, digestive anatomy is a little bit, a little bit different as far as uh, right, right. other birds we commonly think of and then okay so then what i also read about ostrich is i i guess why they're camel like and one of the reasons i you know it's in their name is they really don't need to drink water right i mean they they have a a really good ability to thermoregulate and they get enough water from the plants they eat though they will drink from a watering hole if they come across one but generally they don't need to right i mean they're pretty good at thermoregulating Oh, yeah, their thermoregulation, that's kind of one of the rabbit holes I went down, and I did, I'm not going to even do it justice for lack of time. 
But yeah, these guys are incredible at how they basically don't overheat living in hot climate. And so some of the features that help them control their temperature, because there is, of course, a lot of heat, but in the desert areas too, it can get cold at nighttime as well. And it can vary in their natural habitat. Temperatures can vary as much as like 40 degrees Celsius or or 72 degrees Fahrenheit. So their wings, once again, can help, uh, can help them conserve heat by either bringing them in closer to their body or opening them to help release heat from their body. They don't have any sweat glands. So unlike us humans that can use water condensation on our skin to help cool our temperature down, ostrich can't do that. So they actually use their breath and like your friend Fido at home, they'll pant to reduce. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Yeah, they pant pant to help reduce their body temperature, which is really interesting. And then their skin, probably one of the reasons they evolved this long featherless neck and these long featherless legs is to help them also thermoregulate their skin. And so what ostrich will do is when they're cold, they'll constrict their blood vessels or more specifically their um arteroles to reduce heat loss from the skin. So keep that heat inside the core of your body and your neck and your legs. And then when they're hot, they'll dilate their blood vessels to increase heat loss. And so they also use countercurrent exchange, which you and I have talked a lot about on this podcast, where basically the hot blood passes close enough to a vessel that has cooler blood in it, and they pass off that heat. In one of the places that they actually reduce heat is in their brains. So they have a really oh. faci- yeah, they have a really fascinating mechanism called selective brain cooling and to help them thermoregulate. And the physiology behind this is the ostrich is able to manage the temperature of the blood going to the brain so it's not too hot. So the next time anybody calls you bird brain, Mm -hmm. say thank you. Like, I know, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) that's that's a compliment. My body is so physiologically Mm -hmm. awesome that it knows how to not help me overheat. And it keeps their little brain, their little brains, (laughs) they don't have very big brains. uh, It keeps it nice and and cool. And so, yeah, I mean, they're just a wealth of adaptation for their climate. And it's just, it's been a real fun week learning about them. Oh, yeah, they're they're just, they're so cool. I mean, that's why everybody loves ostrich. I mean, I think most everybody loves ostrich. It's just, it's such an iconic animal from Africa. Yeah, yeah. So I've read some of their behaviors. We did open up with some of their crazy calls. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the other things that they do, you know, t- together, which is just, I think that's why it's such a favorite, like, especially on nature shows. They're just, they're just fun to so, watch. They're fun. They're exactly. They're super fun to watch. Uh, they actually are fond of water. So when they do come across it, they'll take a bath and flutter their wings in it when given the opportunity. And, uh, and sometimes when ostriches are threatened, they'll either hide by laying flat against the ground. Or they'll use their speedy legs to run away. And now the common ostriches spend some time alone, interestingly enough, uh, where they're not really grouped up. But during the breeding season and sometimes in drought situations, the birds will flock together in a group of anywhere from five to ten animals. 
And a behavior that I super love about them is that they're found often in the company of other grazing animals like antelope and my favorite zebras. And so that's just the most beautiful picture where you can look across the African plains and see when you can see zebras or zebras and some gazelles and ostrich just all in the backdrop, just hanging out, grazing, doing what they do best. So uh, now when it's not breeding season, you will once in a while maybe see uh, one or two of them together, uh, but they're not usually they're not usually in these larger flocks. And of course, Chris, I had to open with that booming sound. So that's a male. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a male. Females don't make that, those sounds. The males create this booming sound from a pouch in their throat, and researchers think it's to help mark territory. But they also make other sounds. There's no songs, no singing in ostriches. Uh, but they yeah. will do whistles and hisses growls and uh, hoots sometimes. So a lot more subtle than your average your average bird, but man, that booming thing, I I never heard that before. And once again, I'm totally I totally missed out at the zoo by not being able to work with them. That's for sure. I would not know if I was walking around the zoo and heard that. I would be just like scared. What is that? Well, I know. <laughs> you know it's so exactly. Loud. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cuz it can you could pretty much think that that's like a lion roaring. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's quite interesting. Now, Angie, the 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 roar. I I wonder, does the male sing, or what's some of the things he does during mating? I know there's a special dance that he does that maybe John could learn for you. I he should <laughs> if he loved me. I mean, that's all I'm. That's all. That's all I'm asking for. My birthday. Like, really, that seems yeah, like not very that. much to ask for. <laughs> Oh yes, well, uh, we actually were lucky enough as a family for my one of my last birthdays. John did take our family behind the scenes at Disney Animal Kingdom Lodge, where it's just basically a huge mm. savanna, and we got to go on a truck and just mm. hang out with the animals. So he he needs to figure out something for this birthday coming up, and I think an ostrich yeah, dance yeah. would be. I mean, that way we're at home, we're safe, right? Uh, so, but no, it was fun. Make sure the, the kids are fed. Yeah, and doors yeah. Locked. But, but well, well, the kids and I, we saw this, and I have some video of it. I'll see if I can maybe dig yeah. it up for you. But okay. when we were, um, but when we were at Disney Animal Kingdom Lodge, and this like behind this, we we didn't stay there. Okay, that's expensive, but we we got mm-hmm, the tour mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. behind the scenes, and yeah, we saw the males and females doing some courtship displays. So it was really, really cool. They basically include making hissing noises and to attract a female, the male ostrich will often do like a little dance where he, he crouches down a little bit and then he alternates bringing his wings forward. Kind of like when my, I mean, my, my husband would actually be really good at this type of dancing. Mm -hmm. I could see him doing it. He'll like basically alternate which, you know, wing he moves forward and backward. And so that will get the lady's attention. And then he will bow and flap more his wings uh, to her. And so the male also might start poking on the ground with his bill. And researchers think that it's like symbolic for like, let's build a nest together type deal. Like, cause they're nest, I'll, I'll, I'll cover their nest here in a second, but they're on the ground. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, mm-hmm. he does all that. And the, and then when the male's really starting to feel sassy, he may even, uh, run a circle. And then if the female likes what she sees, so I guess I would have to participate in the video, uh, 
she will run a circle around him and she'll lower her wings. And then he may move his head in a spiral motion and then the magic happens. So <laughs> the other thing that's kind of cool, which we saw when we were at uh, Disney mm-hmm. Animal Kingdom Lodge, was that the males will often turn – their necks will turn brighter red and their beak will may even get a more redder tint during the breeding season. Females will also change a little color to let everyone know that she's she's uh, available, and uh, she will her 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 feathers may turn more of a silvery color, is what I read. So I didn't necessarily okay. notice that, but okay. I definitely saw all of these wing mm-hmm. movements and crouching down, and the kids right, are like, "What are they doing, right. mom?" And I'm like, "They're dancing," <laughs> you know. And that's the great answer. It's amazing. That's mm-hmm. amazing. You saw it. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. amazing. You saw mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So, but yeah, we got to talk about these nests because the male does this ritual where he like puts his head on the ground like he's maybe making a nest to help attract her. But ostrich nests are actually really cool. They're a simple pit in the ground, typically made of sand uh, after digging a hole or this pit. And it's, the pit can be about 30 to 60 centimeters deep and up to three meters or nine and a half feet wide. Uh, which are made by the male. He does all the work. I like that. And then the females will lay her fertilized eggs in a communal nest. So she shares it. So the male does the work, but then I guess lots of females will lay their eggs in there. And, and Chris, the eggs, the eggs are large. Just like everything else with the ostrich, the egg of the common ostrich is the largest egg on the record books, uh, except for, of course, the elephant bird, as you mentioned, or the moa. And the eggs are going to be six inches in diameter and weigh about three pounds. So that's mm, massive. It's a massive egg. They're really yeah, they're thick. John told me that an adult male can stand on an egg without breaking it, but I... I, I, I'm a scientist, so I, I tried to find that written down like in the literature somewhere. And that I data, yeah. But maybe somebody can help me know if that's true or not. Maybe they've stood on one. I don't know. It seems like risky. Like I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to ruin an egg. I didn't I don't know that, but I did read that, you know, ostriches got a bad rap way back in the day because they would abandon nests to go feed and do other things. And so they thought they were bad parents, but it was because the, the eggs were so thick. That they, you know, you can't break the shell. So they're like, yeah. oh, the eggs are fine. If I can go eat and come back. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, I mean, they, they are very thick and they're, they're like white, silverish, yellowish color. And they have these like little pores in them. Uh, these like little divots. I mean, they're beautiful. I, and Chris, one fun fact I did find out about an eggs. If you were to eat one, which I guess it's a delicacy in some places, I don't know. Uh, but it's 2000 calories. Yeah. So that's more calories than I, as a woman, should have. In a I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. But so super, super yeah, silly that's stuff. Crazy. <laughs> um, but what I can get behind is the incubation of the egg. So the incubation of the eggs is about 40 to 46 days. Okay. But the reason I can get behind it is because caring for the eggs is divided up equally between males and females. Males will off- often watch over them during the night. Sign me up for that. Hello, right, ladies? Uh, that would be that's mm-hmm. big. I, John, it's it's the middle of the night. Here, you take the baby. And the various females of the mating group will watch them during the day. So I 
I think that there is a lot. And maybe that's why, like you mentioned, that they're not always seen on the nest because there's probably a little bit of a switching off here and there and things like that. Uh, but the research I found is like they usually do try to have somebody on them more for protection, but they are not a fragile egg, as you mentioned. So, No, no. And, and because this egg is so darn big, when they finally hatch, baby ostriches are the size of chickens. I, it's, it's so crazy. wrap your mind around that. I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> Comes out as a chicken. Oh, uh, right. It's so funny. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, so yeah, they're, you know, they're they're looking good. Um, they are fawn in color, the chicks are, with dark brown spots. So that's pretty charming. And during the first year of their life, uh, they'll grow about 25 centimeters or 10 inches per month. And then when they're one year of age, they're not definitely not full grown. They're only probably about 99 pounds or 45 kilograms. But what is kind of sad when we talk about predation in ostriches is that one study has shown that fewer than 10% of nests survive the nine-week period of laying and incubation. And then of those that do survive, only about 15% of the, the chicks, chicken-sized chicks, uh, will make it to a year in age. So wait, wait, there's wait, a lot wait, of wait, wait, wait. young Say life. that again. Okay. 10% of nests make it. Mm-hmm. And then of that, only 15%. Make it to one year in age. Survive. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Ugh. Right. Well, and yeah, then I guess does- that answers my question of how surviving and how hard it is it's it, i guess that's why they live so long i mean they would you would think with those numbers they'd be extinct sure but i think when you, you know? when you do reach sexual maturity when you're either three or four years of of age then then you know you've kind of got to figure it out your rate of predation isn't that high uh, it's not very mm-hmm, common mm-hmm. for a cheetah to take down an ostrich an adult ostrich unless they're right. sick or something and mm-hmm. um But yeah, and I think that that's why you have both parents helping out too, right? Because it is so hard. And in fact, after the chicks are born, the males and females, once again, share responsibility for taking care of their young. And interestingly enough, a male... He'll try to lure a predator away from the chicks while they run mm. for cover with the female. So he's a good daddy. And he will also Heck help yeah. teach. Yeah. He'll also, which is good. It's almost Father's Day here in the United States. So I think we picked a good, a good daddy species to cover. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And and he also teaches the ostrich chicks how to feed. So mm-hmm. you know, pretty cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. They're amazing. I mean, it's you know what's funny about all this, Angie? It's just every time we cover a bird, we're just both like, oh my gosh, we learned. I mean, we do that most of our species, but the birds just always blow us away. It doesn't matter. Oh what no, it is. you're right. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I find myself going down all these physiological rabbit holes because I'm like, that's so crazy. That's so crazy. Mm-hmm. That's so crazy. But you and I are trained yeah. more in mammal physiology. And so, yeah, getting into the birds is really fun. And, and there's still so many to cover. That's for sure. Yeah. 
for sure, for sure. All right. So conservation wise, we you know we kind of talked about it, opened it up. You know, we said that the common ostrich least concerned by IUCN, but their population is decreasing because habitat across Africa is decreasing. So again, something I talked with Julian at length about a little bit, you know, especially how it affects giraffes and things like that. So obviously it's going to affect ostrich. The Somali ostrich is vulnerable. And again, their population is decreasing. So, you know, amazing birds, but you said there are people out there fighting for ostriches, so we don't need to go start one, right? We don't yeah. need to go start an organization. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, we would need to start one dedicated just to the Somali ostrich. So anybody out there looking for a new passion project, I found a really awesome organization that I want to give a shout out to this week. It's called Nikella. That's N-I-K-E-L-A. And they can be found at Nikella.org. And then also on Facebook at Nikella-Helping People Save Wildlife. And I was really att- attracted to this organization because they they are smaller in size, but really pack a punch on the conservation scale impact. And I always, you and I are kind of a two-man show. And Nikella is an awesome organization started by Margaret and Russ, who basically just want to help wildlife in Africa and the communities that surround wildlife areas in Africa. And they do so many things. You have to check out their website, follow them on Facebook, because I don't have time to mention them all. But in general, they basically help people save wildlife in Africa. And so basically, everything is done online. So 100% of the proceeds can go to people in these local communities and other conservation groups that are boots on the ground doing grassroots conservation. And they have really cool videos. We'll put some up on our show notes about being able to donate direct money to the communities that are in dire need of it in Africa to help support wildlife. And so it's just a really neat organization where Margaret and Russ travel around Africa and their old Land Rover, which I can appreciate because that's how I've definitely gotten through different parts of Africa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they they basically search out wildlife heroes and give them money towards real hands-on projects. So in regards to ostriches, Nikella has done a lot to educate the public through social media, monthly articles, and then partnering up, partnering up with other organizations to help create legislation and save their habitat, right? So saving ostrich habitat will also save zebra habitat and wildebeest habitat and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And an example of ostrich conservation, they partnered up with a group called the Sahara Conservation Fund or SCF, and they're trying a grassroots approach in the country of Niger to help protect the last remaining ostriches living in captivity under human care. And what they're doing there is they are helping care for these ostriches and breed them in hopes to re-release them back to their historical ranges in Niger. So, mm-hmm. so Nikella put together a program called Adopt an Ostrich Program where your support will go directly to caring for ostriches in Niger uh, that will hopefully be re-released someday in their native habitat in Hopefully, this is going to be kind of used as a toolkit of how this can be done in other places because 
we've talked about before on the podcast, like reintroduction science. We're still learning a lot about it. Like it's not just super mm-hmm. easy, like go release all the animals and put them back in the wild. Like it doesn't really work that way. You, you want to use science and data to help make sure that the populations you release are safe and are stable. So Nikella and the Safari Conservation Fund are helping do that. So kudos to them. And we'll put more information on our show yeah. notes and go to Nikella.org to learn more. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, uh, I love hearing about all these different NGOs and people out there, you know, fighting hard for these animals. It's amazing. And so my conservation tip of the week is more towards our listeners because sometimes we do get asked this, like, how do I help? You know, I want, now not everybody can travel. I mean, a lot of us have children or other jobs, commitments, but if you're looking to contribute. First thing we did talk about earlier is ecotourism. Whether you do it locally, go to your local zoo, your accredited zoo, or support, you know, if you can travel internationally or, you know, near your country, you know, go and support these operations. But I have had emails and Angie's gotten emails from listeners that go, well, I want to go volunteer somewhere and do some work, right, in Africa. So this week, I'm going to list and, and I'm going to post this on our on our show notes where listeners can go. I have the 12 best Africa volunteer programs that people can go and help with wildlife and the locals. Awesome. Sign me up. So if you really want to go help some of these animals, here's just a, a quick synopsis of, of the top 12 that they list. And this is on gobroad.com, Volunteer Abroad, African Animal Volunteer Programs. So one is hands-on lion conservation with an African impact in Zimbabwe. Who wants to go to Zimbabwe? Me. Yes, <laughs> Over here sign me up. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so you actually help lions and, and elephants. So that's one that they have there. There. Oh, here's one, Angie. You would. Uh, you know, I know you have kids and, and you have a husband, but wildlife research and conservation with Go Eco. So the animals you're going to work with are geckos, snakes, chameleons, frogs, black lemurs. That actually sounds perfect for my family. Are you kidding me? They would love that. We are super into learning about geckos and lizards and toads and frogs. Yeah. yeah. yeah, They need to do a family package. Sign me up. That'd be awesome. You go volunteer there. There's marine conservation expedition. So whale sharks, dolphins. Uh, sea turtles off the seashells, desert elephants in Namibia. Oh, so, that's right you up know, your alley. Yeah, I had a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm gone. I'm out of here. <laughs> so, uh, so South Africa with servals, crowned eagles, cheetahs, honey badger. Okay, that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> honey badgers. Uh, Kenya. This one, Uganda. I'm just going through the countries now. Botswana, uh, penguins down in South Africa. Like, come on, mm-hmm. you know, Stephanie would yes. love that. Yes, Tanzania, Tanzania, Zimbabwe. So those are the top twelve. I will list this on the show notes so you can go and get to the links. If you're young, you know, if you're a student, was it Josh last week? You know, who was changing mm-hmm. his major. If him and his wife want to go volunteer in Africa for a few months, this is how you do it. And yeah, Chris, uh, I know organizations like Earthwatch are super cool. I did that years ago. And for families, there are basically volunteer vacations that you can find 
that will get the whole family involved, not only necessarily in wildlife conservation, but in local projects within local communities as well. So lots of good ways out there to get involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Angie, I, we, we saved this and I'm surprised we didn't talk about it somewhere in the pod, but you know, this whole thing of how ostriches stick their head in the sand. Okay. So that is obviously false because they would not be able to breathe and they would die if they stuck their head in the sand. But where did this originate? Right? So what I found was you know, ostriches very tall. That's again one of the reasons they evolved this tall neck, standing almost ten feet tall. They can see predators coming. Well, one of the things they do to hide is they'll lay down, and mm-hmm. they'll stretch their neck along the ground. And because that neck, I mean, it's reddish, you know, light red. Sometimes it blends into the soil, so it looked like they were sticking their head into the sand when they actually weren't. They were just laying down to hide from a predator. Yeah. Well, and I also read too with that mating behavior ritual of with the male dropping his head to the ground and moving his beak back and forth on the ground to symbolize nest building, that could also be misstrewn as, you know, putting your head in the sand or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not well, true. That's it. And I just. I- <laughs> That's no, not true. They don't stick their head in the sand. <laughs> so awesome podcast, Angie. I just have to ask our fans if everybody can just get one new listener, one one person to get them to start listening and follow the podcast. Angie, I love you forever. We yes, just, and if you and if you growing. know of any kids, mm-hmm, for sure. And if you know of any kids too that are interested in becoming experts for the day uh, and just talking to me about an animal that they are passionate about, and uh, I would love to interview them on our all. Creatures Kids special episodes that we're doing. I'm having a lot of fun with that. And I know it's generating a lot of positive feedback from the families I know that are listening. So send them our way as well. It takes a whole yeah, village, amazing. right? We are, we're all, we're all in this together. We are. We are changing the world. And just look for Julian's interview this, this Thursday. Amazing stuff. But great one, Angie. I'm looking forward to next week already. Sounds good, Chris. Take care. Talk soon. Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.